Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Stian Arneson. This is episode four. Episode three was where I first talked to Stian, and this is a, a very large excerpt that I removed from episode three. So make sure you listen to episode three before you listen to episode four. There's a bunch of uh, technical things in this episode because we talk a lot about the uh, science behind the collapse of the World Trade Center. Uh, but that mostly happens in the second half hour. So if you just want to listen to some interesting talk about conspiracy theories and debunking, the first half hour is very good. And if you're interested in the science of the collapse of the World Trade Center and how to talk about it, listen to the second half too. We start out talking here about the Alaska report, which is a report carried out by Dr. Leroy Halsey of the University of Alaska and a couple of his graduate students that was paid for by Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is a group that promotes the conspiracy theory that the World Trade Center was destroyed by explosives. This report has been in process for a number of years and is just on the verge of being released. A couple more things I want to touch on. What do you think is going to happen with the immediate future of the 9-11 community? Do you think it's just going to go on exactly the same? Because there's a number of irons in the fire, so to speak, with the uh, the studies and the lawsuits and things like that. Yeah, uh, well, it could it could potentially lead to some unintentional consequences. I feel when when talking to one of the peer reviewers, what they've done in the Alaska report uh, that I got to know today is that they've done a, an entire simulation of the collapse of Building Seven mm. from the top down, and they've. Um, with the report uh, being released, uh, hopefully before the summer, they have done modeling where they've taken out certain sections of the building and done the same as in the official uh, World Trade Center 7 report and tried to simulate how things would happen and also simulated, according to him, that what would happen if all the uh, call columns would have been taken out instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've gone through a lot of different scenarios to exclude the possibility that the official story is is true. And they're hoping to get the report within uh, a couple of weeks for, for peer review. Uh, the reason for the delay has, uh, according to him, been uh, because uh, Leroy Halsey has been injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an accident, and they've had to change a bit of the the rhetoric in the report due to uh, the language being used in it. And um, uh, I, th- I think that with that report coming out, there can be some some healthy questions that could ho- hopefully um, um, bring up some some new questions that could lead somewhere. And um, I will, of course, notify you as soon as I can when that report becomes available in any draft or any in any way, because I think the more minds look at it um, with um, different classes, they, um, the, the better. But uh, with the future of the 9-11 community, I think that it will be uh, – I think it will depend on the Alaska report and the, the lawsuits coming up. So what did you mean by unintended consequences? The reports could maybe um, lead to questions being asked that hasn't been asked before in the mm. engineering communities. One, the idea is to spread this report far and wide uh, through all different kinds of uh, engineering and architecture and communities to, to have the most amount of people look at it. And... If if the report shows what he says it will show, that there's no way that this building came down the way it did because of a fire, then I guess the unintentional consequences could be could be anything really. I mean, it could be potentially the, the an uprising of for a new investigation, or it could be something else that I I can't even imagine because uh, if it does come out that there's no way, then I can only speculate as to what will what will happen. But I don't think it will die out. Yeah, I don't, uh, certainly don't think it's going to die out either. It's one of those conspiracies that's uh, 
you know, obviously it's been uh, what eighteen years now, uh, like and yeah, it's and it's going to, uh, you know, like JFK will, you know, that conspiracy theory will live forever. Uh, mm. But I think you know maybe one of the the consequences you mentioned was you know people looking at things they hadn't looked at before, and one of the challenges uh, I have in debunking things is that the mainstream uh, scientific community uh, doesn't really take things seriously. So it's kind of hard to get people to look at chemtrails. Like I, w- I was part of a study where we asked scientists to look at chemtrails, uh, supposed mm. chemtrail photos, and uh, we surveyed all these scientists, like hundreds of them, and we got a lot of responses back, people saying, are you serious? Like, this is just ridiculous. Why are you even doing this? And people didn't exactly. even respond a lot of the time. And then there was, you know, there was some proper scientific names associated with the study. So we did actually get some responses, but it's very hard for people to take things seriously. And I think... But why do you think it is? Well, because uh, chemtrails in particular, I think, yeah, a scientist when told, you know, the government is secretly spraying things out of the back of planes and the evidence is these white lines we see in the sky. They'll just say, well, those are contrails. What are you talking about? And mm. it, it immediately, on the face of it, falls falls down. And mm. I think most people but they, in they, the... They, sorry. I, well, I they, think, they, 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 we know that they they have experienced, or experimented with chemtrails as a, as a way, or not directly chemtrails, but contrails as a way to perhaps stop global warming or to, to cool the planet in creating artificial clouds. And putting chemicals into this to make mm-hmm. it more intense, so that it would do whatever it needs to to do to cool the planet. So the the idea that the government would be spraying something to to put it like that in, into uh, using planes to do it, um, one would think that a, a scientist or the people that you approached would should instead say. Um, well, let me get back to you on this and mm. let me look at it instead to, to well, have an open the, mind. The people that we uh, contacted were people who were experts in their field. And uh, there was two areas. One was uh, uh, atmospheric physics, which is basically clouds and things. And the other one was uh, atmospheric chemistry, which is the things that are in the air and the, the deposition of those things out of the air. So they are familiar with what's actually going on in the sky. Mm. And they know mm-hmm. that you know the trails are, are contrails, and that they know that there haven't been any, you know, uh, large amounts of uh, aluminum being found in the air. And also, it we didn't just ask them; we sent them a questionnaire, which gave them the opportunity to you know look up things. And so they could look up what yeah. the state of geoengineering research is right now. And the state of it is that no tests have been done spraying things oh. from planes. So we're at a okay. very, very early stage in potential geoengineering research. And because they know that, uh, they, they're just going to um, dismiss it. I think you know, a lot of people also are quite dismissive of conspiracy theories in general. You know, the idea that the government is secretly uh, doing this enormous project, uh, spraying thousands of tons, tens of thousands mm. of tons per day, just seems ridiculous to a lot of people. Uh, now, I know it also seems perfectly normal to a lot of people because they are more prone to believe that the government does these large-scale secret projects. But I think going back but, to 9-11, though, it's like you get the same reaction from uh, engineers and scientists and pilots. When you talk to them, uh, they will either just reject it out of hand because it just seems so ridiculous, or they will know something about it or a combination of both those things. And so they just... They, they view 9-11 conspiracy theorists, like no offense, as being, um, from their perspective, like tinfoil hats type people. Uh, that mm. They don't even think they deserve any time, uh, any of their time. So if we wanted to get a, pop, a proper refutation of the architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, it's left to people like me or like the other people who aren't really engineers uh, mm. to go through mm. these things. And so we get these you know, debunkings that really don't carry that much weight, even if they're correct. But that phenomenon in itself, of that way of reacting to, I mean, uh, the idea of there being a conspiracy uh, being true or or not true should either way have 
you know, be open for discussion or, or debate at least. I mean, the, the idea that the, it doesn't have to be the government, let's say. It could be a privatized uh, institution or company, or it could be several companies. It could be privatized with, or maybe privatized and government, uh, interest cooperating to achieve a, a common interest or a common goal. To uh, and, and regardless of how, I, I wonder where that phenomenon uh, or, or psychological phenomenon in people come from, where they have that reaction, as you say, that, oh, this is so ludicrous, I'm not even going to touch it. Uh, where in some cases, these things that sound so ludicrous, for example, what, uh, what Snowden revealed or what Julian Assange has revealed or... Uh, go through history through the Roman Empire or anything else, you see this as a uh, a human phenomenon to collaborate or to achieve a goal, and you're willing to go at any length to achieve it if you're ideologically um, rooted enough to and, and then do it. So I, I wonder why so much resistance in people and experts, uh, so-called experts, where they don't even want to look at the material, that's that's when I have a problem with it because they they're the ones responsible for answering the questions about this because they're the ones that know something about this and they're the only ones that can tell us how we're wrong. And when they have a reaction like that, um, it just builds up the inertia of uh, people that believe that there's definitely a cover up. And um, so I'm. I'm I'm paralleling it here to the way that these scientists are reacting might be uh, familiar to almost these small groups, families, where they have their worldview threatened. Because what if they're actually right? What if I'm, you know, for example, in the 9-11 community saying that maybe it's not the way you think it is? Oh, shit. Well, then we're going to exclude you. And we're not going to listen to you. You're, you're a shill or you're... They name call you, uh, just like they do with tinfoil hats, or they, they, it's the identical behavior, in my view. And where do you think this, this phenomenon uh, comes from, from in people? Well, I was reminded there with some of the interactions I've had with flat earth people and talking to people who are not flat earth people. And you know, obviously, it's a far more ridiculous conspiracy theory than even chemtrails or 9-11. But you get the same reaction from ordinary people. Like if you say, like, you know, I believe the world is flat, then they are going to say, that's just ridiculous. That's just you know, complete nonsense. I'm not even going to bother uh, talking about that. Uh, mm. But if you ask most people, how do you know the Earth is flat? Uh, how do you know the Earth is round? They mm, won't they be don't. able to give you an answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, just, they're, they're just saying it because you know that's what they've learned in school, and they trust the scientists. And yes, and and people been... make fun of flat earthers. Yeah, and I think there's obviously going to be a, a degree of that in in any conspiracy theory. If you say like you know, uh, why don't you believe in uh, chemtrails? The initial reaction of a lot of people is that that's obviously ridiculous. And with 9-11, um, everyone saw the planes fly into the buildings and we saw the buildings burn and we saw the buildings collapse. So it, it doesn't seem that unreasonable to most people that uh, that's what happened. Mm. And then you got some other people like saying, oh, maybe there were pre-planted explosives and it's because we can see these squibs and it didn't fall at the right speed and you know this flange was two, two inches too wide. That just sounds like a lot of... To most ordinary people, it it, it just seems like a, an unnecessary, made-up complication to their simple explanation that they already have, that they think most people share, and that they bought into at the time, and that we you know we justify going to war over, and so they 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 just reject it out of hand. Mm. The vast majority of people are not interested in the the science behind nine eleven, like in the way they're not interested in the science of whether the the world is flat or not. And they just mm. accept the, the official story. Um, and, you know, I personally think that they are correct in, the, in, in, uh, in that general assessment, you know, certainly with the physics aspect of it. Uh, mm. But, yeah, I, I would like 
to have more physicists weighing in uh, on why the towers collapsed and why Building Seven collapsed the way it did. Uh, I was thinking like the 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 chemtrail paper I, I I helped out on was called an expert consensus on a secret large scale aerial spraying project, and it's basically a, a consensus paper where you try to figure out what all the scientists think on average. And I think we could do something similar like to that with 9-11, if we could somehow manage to uh, uh, take a survey of actual engineers. I think that would be an interesting uh, way of getting a a better gauge. Because right now, all we have is that we have these thousands of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth on the one Mm. hand, and then we've got like a vast silence on the other, other side. Now, really, that exactly. vast silence is because these people are going, oh, that's just ridiculous. Why, 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 why am I going to bother with that? Mm. Uh, but to the people on the truth side, they think that you know, these people, you know, they're scared of losing their jobs. They're scared of being ostracized. They don't want to look at it because it's, um, uh, could, it, it worries them. Uh, could be which, some yeah, truth in that? There could be some truth in that for some individuals, yeah. Uh, mm. uh, but... People do. Uh, if, if people start spouting 9-11 truth in the workplace, it can actually lead to problems. But that's just, you know, if, yeah. if you start being evangelical about anything in the workplace, then you know, it's, going to, it's going to cause problems because you're not doing your work. You're spending your time evangelizing and, uh, and bothering people. Mm. But, mm. you know, I, certainly, I see your point that uh, people might be, you know, they don't want to look into these things as Step a conscious decision and maybe maybe a subconscious decision as well but yeah, uh, yeah i would i would encourage people to look into them i look into them <laughs> but like i said you know, yeah I, I think there's one group of truth uh activists who have a challenge every year where they have a debate and they put up this one guy or, or another guy there's two guys that they alternate between i think and they they hold this debate every year and every year the 9-11 people win uh now, the reason they win is that no one shows up to the debate. <laughs> and no one shows up because all they have is they have an open invitation to somebody with a, a, a PhD in physics and who has a certain like uh, publication ranking and so many years of experience and has published one paper on uh, building dynamics or something like that. So they've got this, mm. this narrow field of people, which is probably you know, only a few hundred or maybe a thousand people. And they, they just announce it on the internet and they probably like email a bunch of them and people will just put that straight into the, the bin when it arrives. And uh, no one's yeah. taking them up on it. But they, they wouldn't have me on, even though I could probably uh, answer a lot of the questions that they do, even though I don't have a PhD in physics. I'm familiar with the basic, uh, the basic mm. issues. They wouldn't have me on because I don't have a PhD in physics. And so they, uh, mm. I don't know if they're justified in doing that because uh, you know, are, are they genuinely doing it because they don't want lay people on or is it just a way of artificially restricting the debate people? I think you have a really bad name in that community to put it mildly. So I, I saw uh, on, on their website, I was called uh, the Pope of demolition denial. <laughs> That's actually something that's on an actual article on uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. The Pope of Demolition Denial. (laughs) Which uh, I was quite quite tickled by that. Yes, I know. It's uh, (laughs) it's like, what? What does that even mean? (laughs) Oh, excellent. I suppose it could mean like, yeah, my my word is law or something like that. But uh, (laughs) it was was quite funny. Yeah, and that's an unfortunate thing as well. Like... uh, Talking to people, I, I, I want to be able to communicate with people, but once they've formed this opinion of me as being a, uh, a, you know, a shill or whatever they think, a pope, uh, then it makes it very hard to talk to them. And uh, it's unfortunate. Like, you know, I, I talked to you and we had, I think, very productive uh, discussions very honest discussions like we did today. And I think it was, it was great. I think, you know, progress was made and I have a better understanding of, of the issues from my discussions with you. And, uh, you know, you probably got some, something from the discussions too. So I think having these types of discussions is, is a vital part for everyone to move forward. Mm, mm. 
I, I, uh, I, I was wondering uh, in regards to, uh, and I, I completely agree with you there. It's, um, uh, we had a conversation with uh, Richard Gage uh, on the phone a while back. You and, and I did. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. You, you, yeah, with Richard Gage on the phone. And I, I had an impression that that was productive in a way, even though it wasn't mm-hmm. exactly um, going into the weeds as you wanted it to. But if, if that was the approach forward where um, there could be – I mean, I, I've been asking myself, why, why, why the heck hasn't there been a, a panel – where you, for example, and Richard Gage, and uh, f- having, for example, two independent, uh, you know, structural engineers or whatever, or someone else having a discussion and an interaction, maybe with uh, each one's presentation, and mm-hmm. actually having a productive debate. Uh, why hasn't that happened? H- have you taken any initiative to try to make that happen? Has have you? anything from the other side no no one's ever approached me on that I mean, obviously I, th- I think when we were talking then it was about the possibility of going on the joe rogan podcast which you know just never happened because you know joe's i think moved on to uh, other things and that would have been a good talk i think just me and uh, richard discussing our differences would be good uh, with someone like joe or someone like that mediating you know like you say Often these conversations, they devolve into the weeds, the details, uh, and mm. it can be a, a bit boring for the, the listener. Did you see my uh, discussion I had with Tony Zambotti? Yes. That was interesting. You know, he didn't, obviously, I didn't change his mind and he didn't change my mind, but we discussed things and I, you know, I told him some things that he didn't know. Like he didn't know that, uh, you know, the good 2001 wasn't actually an initiating event in the global simulations, uh, mm. which, you know, is, is a, a detail that to most people is completely meaningless, but mm. it was very significant, I think, uh, to, to him and, you know, even to the, the, the whole, the context of the, the study in Alaska. Uh, so I think, uh, having discussions like that can be productive. I think yeah. beating out individual details, like, for example, the the column that was cut at an angle. If we can agree that that particular column was not cut at an angle, then we can stop talking about it and stop yeah. wasting a lot of time. And if we mm-hmm. agree that there could be other causes of iron microspheres, uh, but perhaps they think there was so many of them, it must have been thermite, then we can agree that you know we will we'll start talking about the quantity of iron mi- microspheres rather than the, uh, mm. the their simple presence. Uh, right. So we can kind of move the conversation forward rather than just doing these old things over and over again, you know, constantly having uh, things like, you know, how can a aluminium uh, plane penetrate a steel building? And then I mm. hold up a picture of a ping pong ball going from a ping pong paddle. And I do that like, you know, a hundred times uh, yeah. on an individual basis. But if we can actually, you know, agree on some things, then I think it yeah. could be a bit more productive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, 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 uh, after having those conversations with, for example, uh, Tony Samboti and, um, and other people in the community, which I've seen you've had, or at least d- doing podcasts with people um, talking about uh, much of the same issues, um, are there any, after doing that, do you feel there are questions um, around the collapses of the buildings themselves that might have changed a little bit or that you feel... Do, do you feel that there are questions still about the collapses that are unanswered? I think we don't know the exact sequence of initiating events uh, for any of the collapses. I think we've got uh, the broad strokes of what happened but I don't think we know exactly what happened, but I don't think we're ever going to be able to find out because everything happened inside the building. So all mm. we're going to be able to do is get a range of possibilities of what might have happened. You know, mm. with the World Trade Center 7, uh, much was made of this uh, one girder which was on a seat and the other girders pushed it off in one simulation. In another simulation, they pulled it off and in 
yet more simulations, it stayed in the same place. So the initial mm. conditions uh, of of a uh, simulation and the assumptions you make about what happened with the fire, which are, isn't entirely known, uh, will vary the outcome greatly. Now, if you look mm. at the simulations that NIST did, uh, they they ran a simulation of the fire, and then they ran a simulation of what damage that fire would do if it had burnt for you know under three different scenarios, and then they took that damage from the resultant damage, and then they put it onto a completely different model, mm. and then they just uh, said, "Ready, steady, go," and set that model going with its damage already in place, and the building collapsed. Mm. Uh, which you know it was a reasonable thing to do with the technological limits of the time. You know, one run of that uh, building collapsing simulation took them like like three weeks to do. Mm. Uh, if they were to do it again now, they could probably make it a lot better and they could do it a lot faster and they could do multiple runs. They could uh, farm it out into the cloud and have like tens of thousands of computers running on it at once rather than just the five or six that they had running back then. So, you know, we could... Mm. If someone wanted to spend a few million dollars doing very detailed simulations, then then they certainly could. Uh, so I think, but even then, there's a thing, you know, the chaos theory tells us that very small changes in initial conditions have huge implications further down the line. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's only, a, there's only a certain number of connections which can fail in the World Trade Center, but we don't know which one is the first or what, what, what led to it, what... Uh, thermal expansion uh, is going to be completely different all over the place because you know, there's fire here, there's fire there, that cools down, that dies down, that's a certain distance away from that, there's a bit of wind, these windows are broken, these windows are not broken, these windows broke mm. later at a certain time. It's very, very complicated. So mm. knowing exactly what the position of any particular girder or the state of any particular bolt is, is something that's not going to be known, not, not going to be knowable. You can only mm. get the broad strokes. You can say... You know, if this column fails, then we're going to get something that's going to look roughly like this. Uh, you mm. can say if, like, uh, if if this column failed and then this column failed, or or if you know this this floor failed, you know what would happen. You can run these you know what if scenarios, and you can say if if the fire was a certain you know intensity, what would happen. But you can't know exactly. No, but in regards to the collapse in itself, when you look at the top down going down. And especially Tower Two that was tilting. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to mass in motion, isn't there a physical law that mass in motion goes where the least resistance is? Uh, yes, but in this instance, well, no, there isn't really. Uh, mass moves in a way that is the result of net forces. Now, if you say something will move in the direction of least resistance, I mean this. This ping pong ball isn't moving, even though there's there's no resistance straight up, and there's very little from side to side. But it isn't moving. I have a ping pong ball in mm. my hand. Uh, if mm. I remove what's underneath it, it will fall down. Now, if uh, if you got something, you know, something being supported by something, and the structure underneath that collapses, is the path of least resistance then straight up, or is it to the left, or is it straight down? What we've got here is net forces. We have a force of gravity acting straight straight down. We don't have any forces acting left or right or up. So we've got the force of gravity acting straight down. We've got a resistive force from the building below acting straight up. If the mm. force that's going upwards is less than the force that's going downwards, we have a resultant force which is downwards, which is going to be a bit less than gravity, but it's mm. downwards. There's no reason mm. for it to move from one side to the other. So saying the path of least resistance is, is kind of meaningless uh, because when you add, if you think of resistance as being a force, you have to add in gravity. And if the resistance is less than gravity, then that's actually the path of least resistance. In fact, there's actually force going down, even though there's nothing stopping it going sideways. There's a force going down. There's no forces going sideways. It goes down. But in regards to the force that's pointing upwards, the resistance of the structure in, in itself, and the force that is just enough to to go down, mm-hmm. you would still have that resistance, and that resistance is going to push it, because it's not a symmetrical collapse in any way. There is no. a point of 
collapse at some point, and wherever that point is, is the initiation, where, regardless of where that is. In my mind, and in you know, people I've uh, talked to that are architects and engineers here in Norway as well, completely independent of this, ask the same same questions that that I'm trying to ask here is how how would you then have a a mass that is moving in that way, mm-hmm. doing it symmetrically, and continuing to do so uh, all the way down, and not having one flaw left, and not even I mean. Uh, for example, uh, one of these engineers uh, told me that um, if you if you look at um, demolitions of buildings, mm-hmm. if you have one one explosive that fails anywhere in that building, you will see an asymmetrical um, destruction of that building, where it you will see exactly where that explosive didn't go off because mm-hmm. you had a lot more resistance there. So having a, a cold structure beneath and having that mass coming down, how, how does it not move over to any side? And, I mean, for example, Tower 2 that starts to collapse tilting, but it continues, allegedly, straight down on all the floors, and there isn't mm-hmm. one floor left then. All you have is a, is a, what was it, a staircase with some firemen yeah. in it at the bottom. And in my mind, that is really a mystery. Why, why didn't it, it tilt off? It seems unintuitive, but I think if you look into physics in general, there are a lot of principles of physics that seem unintuitive. Uh, like you might not, you know, why does a pendulum always take the same amount of time to swing? Uh, mm. As pendulum of a certain length, depending regardless of how fast it's going, it always takes the same amount of time to complete one swing. It's not an intuitively obvious thing that would happen, but it, yet it does. It's an observable thing in physics. Mm. Uh, so with the top of building two, now tower two, the impact was higher up than in tower one. No, it was mm. lower down, wasn't it? It was lower down than in tower one. And it was a bit offset to one side, more offset than yeah. the tower one, which is fairly central. Uh, and mm. this caused a bit of an asymmetrical initial collapse uh, which caused the top of the tower to lean over mm-hmm. to one side. Uh, but you know, when, if something is leaning, that means that one side of it is falling faster than the other side, which means that the side that's falling faster is hitting the lower structure more rapidly than the, the side that is, is falling slower. So it's getting more resistive force on the side that is, is falling. So it will actually slow the rotation of that uh, to a certain degree. But also the whole thing is just falling to pieces. Mm. It's not like there's just one big lump on top which is falling down and then, you know, bam, 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 destroying each thing. It's uh, a disintegrating building, essentially. It's disintegrating into these uh, free-falling uh, multi-ton girders. Now, if you imagine, like, in the room you're in right now, if someone drops a... 20-ton girder on the top of your house or your apartment building from a height of, like, 30 feet, it would just, you know, go through the whole thing. And in the World mm. Trade Center, you've got literally thousands of that type of thing going on all over, all different places. The mm. structure that's falling is coming apart. The structure that is below that is also coming apart. The structure that's falling that's coming apart comes apart slower because there's more stuff below it that is also falling, hitting the stuff that's down below, but it's like like someone dropped a bag of rocks on top of something rather than a single rock. It still does mm. essentially the same thing. There's a, a video on YouTube where someone drops a bigger load of water on a car, and the car gets crushed, mm. even though it's just dropping some water on the car from a height of 12 feet. Now, just yeah. because the water isn't a solid piece of something doesn't mean it can't do damage. So yeah. Yeah, you you got to get away from thinking it in terms of you know like cardboard box physics. It's not it's not a box falling through something. It's mm. it's it's girders and it's columns and it's concrete, uh, and they're going through the floors. They're not going through the columns. Uh, it's yeah. much more complicated than you know in a way you can't really use 
you know, people get angry when I say this, but you can't really use Newton's laws of physics to describe a complex situation. If you look at Newton's, uh, Newton's laws of motion, sorry, uh, mm. Newton's laws of motion, like, you know, action and reaction are equal and opposite, a body in motion stays in motion, uh, and F, F equals MA, forces mass times acceleration. They only apply in Newton's physics to uh, point masses. Uh, mm. And you can't mathematically apply them to complex systems, articulated systems. There's another set of uh, physics, uh, laws of physics, which I think are um, Euler's, EU, LER, Euler's laws of physics, uh, which are more complicated. And they include things like uh, rotation. Uh, you know, if you if you hit, you've got two things like this. One hits the other. It's hard mm. to say action and reaction are equal and opposite because what happens to the two things is completely different. If you throw a a a rock through a glass window, uh, yeah, it's it's you know sure you could say when they hit, you've got this equal these equal forces, but what's happening is a, a rock is smashing a window, which causes, which takes some of the energy away from the, uh, the, the rock. So it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, there's something going down, there's something pushing up. And so they should cancel out. But what you said there, that rock hitting the window and crushing the window, it does take away the energy and the momentum from the rock and it does yeah. crush whatever is beneath, but that doesn't mean that whatever is beneath is going to continue the momentum after it's been hit and crushed. So you do have a, you, I mean, I, I just watched one of your YouTube videos where you tried to, um, what was it, demonstrate a breaking effect of having this mass in motion. And you wanted to show that it didn't slow down. But in the video, to me, it clearly did slow down, but it was so small, uh, it was slowing down mm -hmm. so little that it was barely noticeable. Yeah. But in my mind, having, if you look at the, as an analogy, uh, looking at the buildings as a, a fluid in motion, a fluid, fluid of building mass, and beneath it you have a steady fluid of building mass. And if you think of it in those terms, it just doesn't, it well, just it's doesn't not, that's not, make sense, does it? it? No, it, it, it's not a fluid below it. It's, it's a series of connected uh, objects. You can think of it as a series of yeah, rigid yeah. objects like girders and columns and concrete yeah. slabs. So the concrete slabs obviously get broken. And the other stuff is, is largely irrelevant in terms of discussing the collapse. But if you have a structure where if you take out a piece of it, the rest of it collapses. Mm -hmm. You know, just as an extreme example, like, you know, you've got something that's like arranged like a house of cards and you, you knock it a little bit and the whole thing collapses. Yeah, you wouldn't think that is suspicious on the face of it. Uh, and with the World Trade Center, you require a lot more energy to start that progressive collapse. But once it's started, it's still the same type of thing. It is the building is essentially ripping itself apart. Uh, the mm -hmm. the floor panels hold the outer walls to the inner walls. The floor panels are on these little supports that are about you know this big. You know, mm -hmm. they're literally only like, you know, six inches across and they're like a, an inch thick and they're you know, three inches out. Uh, From the center floor out to the... They're like the little shelves, little little shelves like this, and then the the yeah. the truss rests on it. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, and they're, 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 if you look at the connections on the outer walls, they're very, very small. They've got these ties as well, but there's not a lot there. An actual uh, floor panel in the World Trade Center uh, is designed to hold the columns away from the wall. So it's got this, this stiffness in this direction uh, horizontally. And it's allowed, it, it's designed to allow people to walk on it and to move furniture around and to like store things. Uh, and they're designed to hold six times their own mass, these floor panels. Mm. Uh, or 12 times, I think, is the maximum if you if you do it as a static load. Now... When you have something being dropped on those floor panels, it's very, very easy to imagine these floor panels just being stripped away from these little connections that they have on the outer walls. Mm. That means that that floor panel is not holding the outer wall from the inner wall anymore. Yeah, that's, that's mm. no big deal because you've got all the other ones. 
But if you start getting enough of them stripped away, then you've got these outer walls with obviously nothing holding them up and they just fall away because there's all, all kinds of stuff going on. The inner core, much stronger with internal bracing, that stays up a lot longer. You see it in the collapses. You see the inner core uh, yep. not not being destroyed and you know, actually half of it remains uh, after the main mass has reached the ground and then it collapses, which is probably mm. because of the main mass kind of spreading out sideways as it hits the bottom. Uh, but mm. it's it's not it's not a case of something you know, going down through something. It's a case of all these falling things basically knocking these floor panels off and pushing the columns sideways. You know, the columns didn't fail from things dropping on top of them. Uh, that hardly mm. did anything to the columns. They could have, they could have uh, they could have probably supported you know the, the random things that happened to fall on top of them. What they felt mm. what happened was they lost the lateral support which means that it was then very easy for them to, to snap at their seams. They had these seams which were welded with very, very strong mm. welds. But, you know, when you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of tons uh, being suddenly applied sideways with leverage, then these things just... Most mm. of the column pieces that were found in the rubble of the World Trade Center were straight. You, know, you see a few pictures yeah. of the ones that are the famous ones, like the one in the memorial that's got that big bend, and then there's another one that's kind of like a big C shape. Uh, mm. But the vast majority of the column pieces from the World Trade Center are just perfectly straight. And you see, you look at the ends of them, and you see that the welds have just popped out. And this is because mm. they fell apart uh, because they were being pushed sideways. So the force to do that is, is nothing at all to do with their supporting force. It's all to do with you know, the building basically falling apart. So what we're actually watching then, in your in, in your view, is that the that what is actually collapsing on top of the floors is part of the top core of the building, and it's a lot more. It's it's been disconnected completely and let loose, and it's a lot more weight and amount of force let loose from those from that those columns hitting the floors below. Because those, as you say, those columns were so strong and big that they could basically mm-hmm. rush through everything. But what I'm wondering is, in regards to when the collapse is starting and the initiation of it begins, I, I would imagine a, a building fire in that way, twisting and morphing the building over time. And it would you would see it. And, mm-hmm. um, well, you, you, you could actually see, see it. The reason you can't see it, that you think you can't see it, is that the building is very, very, very large. So you're actually getting deflections of several feet uh, in various places. And these are things that you can see in the NIST report, like the the wall is being pulled in on one side. And you can see this deflection, I think it's like six feet or something. It's quite a significant uh, amount. And then it all kind of comes in at once. But yeah, you you are getting these... um, these these warpings, these local warpings of things. But the fires really weren't hot enough to melt the steel, so it just turns into a, like a spaghetti noodle. Uh, they were hot enough that it, it lost its strength and it would slowly sag and bend. Now, most of that happened inside, and this is what's responsible for the, the curved columns that you see. Um, but the building structure is fairly rigid. You've got all these floors attached to the, the core, and then you've got the the hat truss on top, which is this big structure that sits on top of the buildings that was there mostly to hold the antenna up, but it also gave a lot of structural stiffness to the buildings. So when one, uh, when one column loses its strength, the, it will sag a bit, but the weight from that one column being carried by, carried by that one column gets transferred to the other columns around. So it's not like, that fails and then all of a sudden it gets squished into nothingness. It fails, mm. it will like maybe bend a bit or it will like you know get compressed a little bit. Uh, and mm. then because it's not capable of supporting any weight, it basically doesn't exist from the building's point of view and the building sags a little bit more and a little bit more mm. and a little bit more. But eventually what happens is the accumulation of all these things means that there comes a point where something fails, some column fails, the building it doesn't try, but you know the, the building structure redistributes a little bit. But this time, there's no, there isn't enough uh, uh, strength to stop it. it. It's reached this tipping point. So that mm. fails. Something else fails. Something else fails. Something else fails. Very, very rapidly. Bam! 
the entire thing uh, fails across like uh, you know a, a wide section of that building, and then but, the collapse uh, starts. But the but the spaghettification that you mentioned there, wouldn't you wouldn't you see that very visually out even outside the building that if there is if there is a gradual heating of the core and of the columns and of the building in of itself, wouldn't you see it almost sag onto itself and thereby actually no. just stopping? No, if it, had, if it had done enough to sag onto itself, that would mean the entire structural integrity of the building has failed uh, and that the, it wouldn't be able to support itself. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me because you have basically three you individual would have to, The only way you could do that and, is if you evenly... Uh, heated up everything and had everything perfectly balanced and had it all coming down. If yeah. if it's if the top of the building starts to go to one side, then that means that the forces are pushing down sideways essentially on the things below them, and yeah. the they're only designed to the building is designed to be perfectly vertical. Once mm. things start to not be perfectly vertical, yeah, it's kind of game over. You've got mm. uh, you've, you've you've got forces on the columns that they were not designed to hold. You've got forces on the walls that were not designed to to hold, and so it's going to start coming apart. And this is, you've got to remember how big this building is. When you're looking at things, you can't compare it to a smaller building. It's 200 feet mm. by 200 feet, and what 1,300 feet high. So it's it's an, an immense building. So you mm. are seeing these effects of things, you know, metal. Uh, giving way and the building sagging a bit, but it's, mm. it doesn't look like very much, uh, from far out, but, you know, look at the, uh, the NIST report and they, uh, uh, the, the images that where they show, they, they show the deflection of the building and they, they show other things like internal floors that have fallen and mm. then they will discuss how the hat truss and the columns redistribute the load. But, you know, eventually you get to a point where you can't redistribute the load um, mm. I, people laugh at the example of a can. When you stand on a can, you know you weigh like uh, I weigh what one seventy. I can just about manage to balance on on this can. Probably probably not like, but uh, just about mm. when, when I when I weighed one fifty, I could balance on a can. Uh, mm-hmm. But all you've got to do to make this can collapse oh. is just do a tiny little thing, and that mm. one failure immediately propagates around every single bit of the can. That's um, a good example. Yeah, it's it. People don't like this example because they say, "Oh, well, you know, a can's you know, you you should put one can <laughs> on top of another can." But then you start having to get into the details of explaining uh, the square cube law, where as things get bigger, their strength increases as as a square of the size, but the weight increases as a cube of the size, which is another complex physics phenomena that is difficult to explain to people, and it's not intuitive. It's- so for me. that's well, that's how uh, um, there's, there's a famous analogy where if you're dropping animals down a mine shaft, uh, which is something that happened in, in the past because animals were wandering into mine shafts and then they would they would find animals at the bottom of these mine shafts and they would say like uh, I think it was like a mouse uh, bounces, a dog breaks, and a horse splashes. So you got. You know, you've got yeah similar types of things. You're animals, but because one of them, uh, you know, it's it's like fifty times as long. That means it's fifty cubed uh, times the weight, but the actual strength of that thing is only fifty squared. And the reason it's a square is that it's proportional to the cross section. If you think of, you know, a, a pen or something like this, the strength of this pen isn't anything to do with how long it is. But how long it is is related to what it weighs. The strength of the pen is only related to the cross section, so it's mm. only related to the square of uh, of the of the subject. But you know, this is this is a challenge that I have in explaining things to people. Square you cube law is not intuitive. So uh, there and any models of this that are easy to explain. Uh... The square cube law. Yeah, uh, there's a good example of it in use on the thread in Metabunk uh, on building a physical model of the World Trade Center. I can't remember the exact link, but I'll, I shall give it to you and put it in the description. But uh, this Chinese company wanted to 
uh, simulate a building in an earthquake. So they built mm. a scale model of the building, and it was a one-tenth size scale model. And so the original building was you know, over 400 feet, and they built a 40-foot high model, which is pretty impressive. And they put it mm. on a, uh, an earthquake table, which, which would simulate a, a magnitude 9 earthquake. Mm-hmm. And they built this really nice scale model. Uh, it was basically of like Meccano type things, these little metal bolts and uh, uh, metal pieces and, and girders. But then in order to make it realistic, they then had to add uh, about nine times the, the model's weight in lead bricks, which they put on every single floor to make it realistic. Now, People who think that, you know, if you just simply scale something, that would work. You know, people, people think that if you scale it, you can just do a test on that thing and that thing scales to a larger thing. But if they'd taken this, this scale model without these lead bricks and just shaken it, it would have been fine. They could have done a, a magnitude 12 earthquake and it would have been perfectly fine uh, because of the square cube law. So mm. they had to, because it, it's, it, it is, size has been reduced by to one-tenth they couldn't reduce the size by one tenth. They had to reduce the uh, weight by a proportion, which is is uh, I think it's the square root of uh, square root of a hundred divided by the square root of ten, something like that, which would be ten so, over three. So the size of this of the object in and of itself, regardless of how you're modeling it, the size will always change the behavior. In regards oh, yeah. to the, phys- the reaction to the physical, that the the building would react um, differently, very differently, very differently. Yes, regardless uh, with, of what you'd model. Yeah, with a physical a scale model, like I have a scale model of the World Trade Center, right here. This oh, is okay. about a one foot, <laughs> so one thirteen uh, hundredth of the actual scale size of the, the World Trade Center. And yet this scale model is vastly stronger than the actual World Trade Center model. Look, I can take this model and I can drop it from a height of like, you know, its own height and it lands right. on, on whatever and you know, nothing happens. I can throw this thing, which is the equivalent of thousands of tons uh, in yeah. scale and it just bounces off. Yeah. Because very, very small scale models are very, very strong. Now, if mm. I was to scale this and make it the right weight, it actually would be impossible in this universe. Uh, it would be denser than the densest known element in the world. If you had a scale model of the World Trade Center Tower that was six feet high, I think if you made it out of solid gold, like it was a one foot by 12 foot uh, solid gold uh, uh, cuboid, that would be about the right weight. So you, you can't actually build a scale model of the World Trade Center and simulate it exactly, unless you you build it, uh, you have to build it over a hundred feet high and add all these lead bricks. Uh, but to, you've done to make that with your, with your videos, and you yes, I, I, your... I, I've done it with wood. Uh, and the, what I'm doing there is I'm demonstrating one aspect of the okay. collapse. I'm not demonstrating yeah. the entire thing because yeah, you know, if exactly. you look at my my thing, um, the model I do, uh, nothing. None of the the floor panels break up. Uh, there's, there's there's very little in terms of uh, uh, dust or anything like that. I'm not simulating the actual collapse. Nothing really breaks. Uh, there's mm. no there's no strong connections uh, between things. Mm. Uh, and what I'm simulating there is when uh, a floor panel can only support uh, six to twelve times its own weight, and you start a collapse by just offsetting the top of the building a little bit so it falls uh, out of line with the columns, then the entire building will collapse. Uh, mm. So it demonstrates that one aspect of it. It doesn't demonstrate you know, how exactly that happened in the case of the World Trade Center. And you mm. can't do it with a scale uh, model. You have to do it with a model that replicates some of the conditions. So the condition mm. I chose to replicate was the floor panels support uh, six to 12 times their own weight. And I tested that by putting six floor panels on one of them and doing, doing 12 very carefully or, or dropping six from a certain height. Mm. But you know, I also did things like I threw a spanner, a wrench at the side of the building. And if it had been an accurate scale model, then that wrench would have just gone right through it the same way the planes did, but it just bounced off. 
So it's mm. obviously not a perfect scale model of the World Trade Center, except in that one aspect, the one aspect where uh, you've got these, these panels which only, can only support a certain amount of weight and right. when they fall, the buildings fall. So. With the, I, I totally see what you're saying. Uh, the, but in regards to the, the building changing and morphing during the, uh, before the, the collapse in and of itself, wouldn't you see windows breaking all around the building gradually, like completely, with, with the building changing that much in its symmetry, wouldn't you see that as um, that Which it would building just be are breaking? you? You mean like oh, the, the, the towers? Oh, both of them. Oh, well, both towers. That you would basically see windows breaking um, if the building was actually twisting and changing in regards to. Well, you can you can look at uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't twisting. I wouldn't say it was twisting at all. It was okay. sagging in some areas, and the outer walls were being pulled in a little bit. And it really wasn't sagging in a way. Mm. It's noticeable, like I say, the load transfer would go uh, to the other things, and that they're still holding at the top of the building. But an individual column will have sagged, which means that like a floor will start to sag a little bit internally. And you can see there are photos of these bowed floors internally. Now the exterior of the building yeah. has all these columns, uh, and you know obviously a lot of them were missing at the time, so it's uh, uh, there's a lot of damage there. But you do see this inward pull of the the face of the building and you see a bowing of the entire building over several floors now why doesn't mm. that make the build the windows uh, break well it's because it's the actual angle that it's doing isn't that much it's like someone took the bottom of a window and they pulled it in like three inches and then the window below that got pulled in another three inches the window below All that right. got pulled in another three inches it wasn't like mm. he just like twisted the entire structure and mm. I think there were a few windows that were broken, but you know the the windows on the exterior of the World Trade Center were obviously designed to be very strong, like withstand hurricane force winds and people falling against them and things like that. So uh, yeah, it just didn't well, break people, because it didn't bend that much. Mm. Well, people did actually break those windows at the top themselves, though. That's pretty impressive. Wonder what the yeah, they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but just be just being able to breathe at the top. I mean, that they actually managed to do that if the building. Yeah, I'm just just thinking about how. Yeah, they, they can't be, can't have been that strong if they. Um, but anyway, they could yeah, smash it with a fire extinguisher point. or something very heavy. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. For know. example, there is a there is um, when they did the um, the heat mapping of um, of the buildings after the collapse. Mm -hmm. um, you could see identical heat signatures from all three buildings well i wouldn't Isn't say they were identical they were different shapes they were about yes, the same temperature yes, of course different yes yes exactly they they were same 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 temperatures and uh but the same type of signatures in regards uh -huh. to um well basically showing that something was really hot and it's it's been well, hot for quite a while the thing that was really hot was fire but how do you sustain fire underground that way, where it's, there's basically not much oxygen or anything to... Those, and, and, those uh, photos were taken, I think, like two or three days after uh, the collapse, so it wasn't oh. that far into it. And they, they cooled down pretty rapidly after that. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, there were fires still burning for like, uh, like over a month uh, in the World Trade Center, and there were reports of you know, pockets of very, very hot regions. But the, the, the avarice... Uh, data which you're referring to uh, essentially shows fire now if you there are some other hot spots that aren't in the World Trade Center site and they mentioned this in the description of the Avarice image this was uh, an image done with this multi-spectral camera uh, which they flew over uh, I think it was a Navy camera and they they say you know the red spots outside the World Trade Center site are heating uh, system vents so you're getting these red spots uh, in New York City, that were not much, not much cooler than the uh, the yellow spots in the World Trade Center site, and that was simply just from the exhaust from heating systems in uh, uh, in in buildings. And but do an actual do fire itself is very very hot. The flames are very hot, and what it's measuring mm. is the temperature of those flames and those those gases coming out. It doesn't mean that all the metal underground has been heated up to uh, 
you know, a thousand degrees centigrade or anything like that. It just means that there mm. is a fire. Uh, and if you had, if you, if it was just a big bonfire down there, it would probably actually look a lot hotter. You know, just, uh, it looks, it looks kind of patchy because it's largely underground. And what you're seeing is the, the hot gases coming out and heating things in that immediate area. So I don't think that is very suspicious. And I also don't think it's evidence of thermite burning because if there was thermite burning, you would have to have thousands of tons constantly burning for it to keep mm. up, uh, keep it up on, uh, because thermite burns very fast and it contains mm. uh, its own uh, oxygen. So it would just all burn up. Whereas the rubble under the pile uh, doesn't have its own oxygen. So it just burns as it gets uncovered or as oxygen comes through. So you have this kind of mm-hmm. smoldering fire, quite intense at first, but you know, eventually smoldering. Hmm. Interesting theory. The the um, the fires, though, I know, I'm quite sure weren't put out. The last fires underground weren't put out uh, until Christmas. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, so they were burning for months. But the um, which is not the unprecedented. There are lots of sites where fires have burned for months. For example, uh, rubbish uh, dumps. Uh, yeah. is a very common place where you a fire gets started and it can burn for months. And uh, you know, yeah. obviously like abandoned coal mines, but you kind of expect that. But it's the same type of thing. There's a source of fuel which is underground, which is slowly burning or quite intensely burning if it gets a lot of oxygen. There's, mm. you know, if you actually think about how much combustibles there are under there and you know, how much is burnt, it, but I'm just... it doesn't – it's not – but the buildings burning at the in the top sections, mm-hmm. but the top sections being, in my mind, what would probably lay on top after the buildings had collapsed. Well, there's, there there were still several floors. I think thirteen in the case of World Trade Center One, and uh, some more in the World Trade Center Two. On top of that, so if you're going to be thinking of it in terms of uh, a fire sandwich, you've got this huge amount of uh, debris underneath, and then you've got the uh, fire floors, and then you've got the, the floors that were not on fire on top of that. But the whole thing kind of gets mixed together uh, as it falls. And mm. yeah, fire isn't something where you know, there's a fire up there and it gets transferred down here. You know, all kinds of things start fires. Uh, mm. and there was thousands yeah. of individual little fires in the pile, which can then yeah. spread to other things. Yeah. But the testimony from the firemen and from the, um, one of the, um, uh, emergency scene, um, chiefs, uh, can't remember his name, but he, um, he testified to the fact that there were, you know, underground molten steel and um, the that the intensity of these fires was so hot that the it was like opening um, opening up um, a box with lava in certain places. Um, have you explored these subjects? Yeah. To yeah, and I I think what they saw almost certainly was not steel. Uh, molten steel is ridiculously hot for a start. Uh, if it's molten, if it's flowing, you know, it's, it's hotter than the hottest steel you've ever heated up with a blowtorch or something. It's, it's actually white hot. Mm. Uh, and there's two things because it's white hot. One is it cools down very quickly. Molten steel does not stay molten very long. Because it is so hot, it's basically radiating, uh, conducting heat away very, very rapidly. The hotter something is, the quicker it cools down. There's this very steep curve of things cooling down. Uh, molten steel is also so hot because it's molten that it sets fire to everything around it and burns everything around it. So it becomes very, very energetic. If you've mm. ever seen uh, a foundry accident where they spill the steel on the floor, it's just like it's like sparks going everywhere. It's a crazy thing. So I think mm. uh, what they describe doesn't really fit molten steel, which is this, this white, hot, highly energetic material. It more fits... Uh, something less energetic like molten aluminum or molten uh, lead. Uh, there was lots of lead in the building from a, a variety of things like uh, uninterruptible power supplies. They had lots of batteries in the buildings and various mm. other things. Uh, it could even be molten glass, like glass. Uh, I can't remember what the temperature of molten glass is, but 
you know, if something like that is melt melting and flowing, or mm. it, you know, it could be like aluminum uh, with a bunch of embers on it. I think this is what mm. actually happened with the uh, the golden things that you see flying from the building earlier. Is it's molten aluminum, but it's carrying out the fire with it, so it's carrying out all these embers. Uh, okay, a, yeah, the sparkly stuff that goes yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you look at that very closely, you can see there's actually a bunch of dark things falling as well, which I think are the actual just aluminum without the embers in it. But I think the stuff underground, you know, people saying they saw a river of molten steel, I think they, they meant essentially they saw a river of molten something that kind of looked like metal. They didn't know if it was metal. Mm. They're just assuming it's metal, and they just said steel because that's the first metal that came to mind. Because uh, mm. it, it's, they you know... Uh, Firefighters don't generally come across rivers of molten steel. So would a firefighter know what a, a river of molten steel looks like? Mm. Yeah, you could you could argue that they should because they're fighting fires. But since you don't get molten steel in the vast majority of fires, uh, why would a New York firefighter be familiar with what a underground uh, river of steel actually looks like? when it didn't yeah. actually look like what they described, because if it was molten steel, it would be exploding everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah there's been quite a lack of images and videos of it as well. But Yeah, um, and that's the other thing. They didn't find these lakes of, of, of steel. If you've got a river of molten steel, and this, these rivers have been flowing for weeks, then you're going to have this huge lake of uh, steel, molten steel at the bottom of the building, that's just like this pure steel because everything's going to float on it. Uh, and mm. you know, they didn't find anything like that. You don't, you don't see mm. that in, uh, in any of the recovery photographs. You don't see these, you, you see like barely melted guns and things like that. Yeah. You don't see melted steel. You don't see beams where the end has been melted off. Uh, you don't mm. see like something like with a, a puddle of steel, like, you know, you know even if you had, like, you know, a hundred pounds or a thousand pounds of steel, which is like a bit of a girder. Yeah. Where is it? Where is this big bat of steel? Where did it end up? But you do have something that resembles the, uh, something of a volcanic rock mixed with molten metal and different sorts of items and even molten concrete mm -hmm. that set the uh, museum, if I'm not uh, yeah. misremembering. Yeah, there's a thing called the meteorite. But if you look at yeah. that, there's actually bits of paper in it paper in it yeah. yeah really yes oh i have to check that out <laughs> so really what that is it's a it's a compressed chunk of the building uh, when the building fell some parts of it were in regions where they had thousands of tons of stuff directly pressing down on them obviously because they were at the bottom of the pile and oh. they were in a fire region so bits of them got scorched or whatever uh but oh. if you look at the the thing you're referring to the meteorite you mm -hmm. see it's got all these bits of iron and steel coming out of it, which are not molten. They're just regular steel. Then it's got concrete, which is essentially yeah. just com compacted concrete, and it's got some burn marks on it. And if you look very closely, you can see there are bits of paper with visible writing on them. Paper inside the meteorite rock. I'm going to have to write that down and actually um, check that out because that's yeah. interesting. Debunk it if um, it's not true. <laughs> You've been listening to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West, and my guest today was Stian Arneson. This episode ended a little abruptly because I excised it from a larger episode, uh, which you can listen to in episode three if you missed that one. Very interesting stuff. Find out more at TFT.com.